So we're going to kind of go through, and I don't know how far we'll get. We're trying to roll through as we look at Hosea 2, the, the words that Hosea has for his wife Gomer, as well as that God has for his people Israel. Now, before we do that, this, this past week has been, these past couple of weeks have been pretty, uh, I don't know, overwhelming for us as a family, as we kind of manage Dana's mom in rehab, who now has come home from rehab um, yesterday probably before she should have, but, you know, sometimes people want to come home. So she came home. Um, so managing that along with managing her dad and finding out that he has cancer and um, then on Thanksgiving falling and breaking his leg really badly. And so we didn't have Thanksgiving. So we wound up at the trauma unit in Cooper all day. And um, Monday was a surgery that we really thought going in was 50-50 that he would even wake up. Uh, turns out it was much worse than that. It was probably more like 85, 15 by the time we found out about all the factors that they were doing in the pre-op, um, which made it a really harrowing morning to sort through that stuff. We wound up with an option that was very, very low risk um, and takes away the, the pain element for however long he has left, but also makes it so he won't ever be able to walk again and, um, and that kind of stuff. So one of those like middle middle of the road kind of solutions that we wound up with. So everybody was very thankful. But the reason I tell you all that, obviously update you or whatever, but I also tell you because one of the things that goes on in my head as I think about that, I'm talking to the Lord and I'm saying, you know, it's heavy. This is heavy. How do we, how do, we do all of this and sort through all of this and figure all this out? Uh, it's pressure on us. And the verse that came into my head was a verse that maybe you know. It's, a, it's one of those verses of encouragement that fly around a lot. Uh, Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. And so let me nerd out with you for a minute, if I can. Okay? I, it's probably the part of me that studied all the physics that I did in college and then don't, I don't use it at all. So from time to time, it shows up in, in the way that I think and, and the things that I do. But as I thought about how that verse compares what God does for us in moments where we're looking for renewed strength, the ability to deal with the heavy things of life, it compares us to a bird that flies. So... I don't know how much you know about flight, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a primer on the aerodynamics of flight. Ready for this? <laughs> All right. Um, because when you, when you see an eagle flying, what are they doing? Well, flying, yes. But how are they flying? Right? Are they pushing themselves up by air? They're just soaring, right? I mean, they, you, they start. There are flying things that, that constantly have wings in motion in order to get up bees and flies and hummingbirds and things like that. And they constantly have a wing in motion to push air, push air, push air, keep themselves up. But many, many birds are able to glide and soar. And especially some of these bigger birds, they are created not to have much effort, if any effort, on flying. So if you ever get on an airplane, you don't ride on something that the wings move in order for it to get up. That may seem like, how in the world do you fly with wings that don't move? They're not pushing air up. So this is what happens. When you have a wing, this is way oversimplified, but when you have a wing, it kind of looks like this. It has a relatively flat side, and then it has a, an upper side that has some kind of contour to it, some kind of bump. If you look at any plane, you're going to see that kind of a shape on the front of it. The reason for that is because what lifts a plane off the ground is the difference in air pressure created by this wing as it moves through the air. Okay, So as it moves through the air, the air that's on the underside of the wing just goes right on by normal what I'll call normal air pressure. But the, the air that hits the wing and goes up over has to get 
further, so it goes faster. And because it goes faster, there is low pressure up here and high pressure down here. And that's what pushes the wing up. So think about it like this. When you uh, take a breath in, your diaphragm pulls down your lungs. And, you're, and so it creates that expanding of your lungs as a balloon or whatever. It creates a low pressure inside of your lungs by making them bigger. They're not filled up the same as they were when they were small. And that pulls air in. In the same way, when I constrict that, it, it's lower pressure outside, I push air out. So here's what happens. If you think about it as shopping for Christmas, okay? Um, if you have a line that's slow moving, everybody's just bunched up on top of one another, right? They're all just in line, slow moving. Everybody, I was in a traffic jam today on 42 because for some reason they closed off the whole road and took forever to get down the road. We were just all doing that the whole time, right? But in faster moving lines, maybe maybe it's a present nobody wants or whatever, they're, they're much more spaced out, you know, because everybody's moving along at a clip. And so the, the condensing, the, the pressure of this is much greater than the pressure of this. And because it's low pressure up here and high pressure down here, this exerts a force for the high pressure on that wing, pressure on that wing, pushing the wing up. Isn't that cool? So God says this should tell us something about what we do when life gets heavy. When we're weary and we're tired, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. So as I think about this, I think about how the flight is created by having high pressure below me and low pressure above me. And then I thought, well, isn't that what it is? I got a lot of pressure down here. But Jesus said, come to me, all you are burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if what I have is a relationship with God, that relationship with God should be light. And, and the more that I have that sense with God, the easier it is for the pressure of this world to push me up instead of pushing me down. What happens is we get under this pressure and it pushes us down. But what should be on top of us is our relationship with God that should make it light. I just thought that was cool. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Because I, I was like, wow, how about that? There's even like science to that. Yeah, I, I amuse myself sometimes as I think about stuff. That's the only reason I brought this whiteboard out so I could show you that because whatever. Frustrated scientist or whatever. Okay, Hosea chapter 2. Um, let's pick up uh, this story from where we have been. Last time we were together, we saw that Hosea asked his children to do something to Gomer. What did he ask those kids to do to Gomer? Rebuke her. And so Hosea is involving his children in this process of saying, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to come back. So we're going to pick it up on verse 3 where he picks up and says, Otherwise, I will strip her naked, make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother's been unfaithful, has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers and no one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she has laid, which she has said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelries. He went after her lovers, but me 
She forgot, declares the Lord. So this is the case. And really, at verse 13, man, that's the end. And then verse 14 is a whole different tone from God about wooing his wife back and coming after her and pursuing her. So it really feels like there is this the expression of God going through all of these emotions that you would expect when a spouse finds out that their, their partner has been unfaithful. The sense of betrayal, the sense of hurt, the sense of anger, the listing of all of these things that are uh, untruths or unfair or you know false uh, on their face. And, so, and then there's this love, this devoted love for Israel that shows up after it. So Hosea has... You know, in, in chapter 1, we saw the story of these children being born. In chapter 2, he begins to address her unfaithfulness. And so he says to her kids, go tell your mother she needs to turn around. And verse 3, he says, otherwise, if she doesn't, otherwise, I will do this. I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she's born. And when he says otherwise, we kind of finished here last week. Otherwise tells us what about the heart of God towards Israel and about Gomer, Homer's, Hosea's heart towards Gomer. Patience. Patience? Okay. It is a consequence, for sure. Like, there's a, a limit. There's an end to this. But he offers. He offers a path. And, um, it makes it pretty obvious that his preferred path is not this. Do this. Rebuke her so that she might turn. Otherwise, I'll have to... Da, da, da is there's no glee expressed from God in righteousness in pouring out judgment on his people. It's this held back, this, this patient waiting, this pleading, this begging, this calling everyone into the chorus of turn, turn, turn. And that, that really speaks about the heart of God in our lives, that God is calling and calling. And he, he, there are consequences, there is otherwise, but he doesn't want to get to otherwise. He wants us to turn and come back. And so he says, I will do this to her. Uh, strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. Um, there is this sense of, uh, in this passage, shame for Gomer. That she will be shamed publicly. Um, and, and God saying, uh, this is what I'm going to do to my people Israel. The, the stripping away symbolically is meant to say you, ha- you lose dignity, but you also lose your ability to camouflage, your ability to um, hide reality. Okay? You know, if, uh, if I'm a magician and I have a jacket on, I probably got stuff going on inside my jacket for my tricks, right? And the reason I can hide it is because I have this clothing on and I can hide stuff from you that, that I don't want you to see. In, in this sense... It's almost as though God is saying to Israel and and Hosea is saying to Gomer, you have been portraying yourself as one way and the time has come for that to end. If you make this decision to continue going down this path, if you will not repent, if you will not turn, then your decisions and your choices and the the tenor of your life is going to be put on display in public. Now, for us, we hear stripped naked, and, and it becomes this, because of our culture, this very erotically connected thing, and, and very abusively connected thing. And, and I get that, uh, especially in a culture where everybody's getting fired for uh, sexual harassment right now, right? I, I get that. I understand uh, the, the, the way that that hits us. But in this world, especially the ancient world, and specifically in the Jewish culture, public nudity was not connected almost at all with eroticism. It wasn't sexualized. It was deep shame. It was humiliation. It was uh, degradation. It was you are you know, the, the, the bottom rung of society kind of a thing. It was meant uh, much like public floggings were <laughs> back in the day. Why, why do it in public so that everybody knows this person you know, messed up and deserved this or whatever. This publicness was seen as great shame. And so as it's referenced here in Hosea, everybody in that culture knows the implication of that. Whether or not it literally happened to Gomer, there's disagreement over that. And I don't know that, 
I don't know that what Hosea is saying to Gomer is I'm going to punish you in this way or God is even saying to Israel, you know, this is a literal thing. I think what happens is he's saying in some figurative language, this ability for you to portray yourself as my people is coming to an end. This ability for Gomer to still play the part of my faithful wife is coming to an end. Everyone's going to know, it's going to be public knowledge that that's not what's going on here. That exposure the word exposure kind of has that stripped sense as well as what we would say for a scandal being exposed, the truth of the scandal being exposed. Um, there was, like I said, in that culture, often a punishment given to an adulteress to force her to leave behind the clothing given to her by her husband. Basically, if you're not interested in being his wife, then you don't get to have his stuff. That, and I'm not saying that's right, but that's the reference that we're getting here is them saying, if you have rejected your husband uh, in, in a way of faithfulness and fidelity and, and morally, then you also lose all the benefits of being his wife, including your food, clothing, and shelter, the sustenance of your life. Does that make sense? Certainly it's a message for Israel. What, what might God be implying? He's not going to make all of Israel naked. What's he implying about Israel when he says, I will strip you naked and as bare as the day you were born. Shame. shame. Their shame is going to be public. Everybody's going to see their shame, right? What else is he saying about them? He's going to take away his protection and show them how vulnerable they are without him. So when the day you were born, how much could you take care of yourself? Right? So God, in some sense, is saying to them, you are going to return to the helplessness of just your own resources. I'm going to stop providing for you. If you want Baal, if you want these other gods, and that theme runs throughout the rest of this chapter as, as, you, as we just read it. If you think Baal is the one that's going to come rescue you, you can be as helpless as that reality is. I'm going to stop filling in the gaps for you. I'm going to stop making up the, you know, all of the, the lack of your life. If you think Baal is God, you're going to have to depend on Baal for your life. So that makes sense then that he talks about make her like a desert, turn her into parched land, slay her with thirst. He's talking about basic necessities. He's talking about the sustaining of life. He's not even talking about a rich, wealthy, extravagant life. Just water. Basic necessities. And he's saying that you would, Israel, you would rather indulge this idolatry for all these, this other God and these other gods so that you can indulge all this fleshliness, what you don't realize is all of that does nothing but kill you. I've been providing life for you. I've been watching over and sustaining you. And you turn your back on that like it's nothing and you embrace and sacrifice everything for this like it's everything and you're exactly wrong. I think it's so challenging to us because how much of my life recognizes and lives like God is everything? Like what he gives me, he's the source of what happens in my life that's worthwhile. That my passion and my pursuit of him is the only thing that is really meaningful in this life. As we gathered uh, on, on Monday around my father-in-law and kind of in our heads thinking this may be the last time we talk to him, what keeps coming out of his mouth is about his relationship with the Lord. You know what? Every single person, when you get to the end of your life, all the stuff that kept you busy in your life really melts away. If you put yourself at 92 years old in a hospital bed looking at the possibility of not waking up later that day, not so worried about all the stuff that you're worried about, are you? So I wonder how much Hosea is meant to shake us free from the things that stick to us, that seem so big, act so big in our hearts, in our minds, and say, do you get it? Those aren't the big deals of life. Can you like, deal with them appropriately as I've called you to deal with them? But can you keep in mind what really matters, what your purpose is, and where your passion should be in this life? Or is it always just going to slip through your fingers? And so if Gomer is to leave this marriage, just like any other woman of this time, if she's going to leave this marriage, she's going to have very little, if any, resource for her basic needs of life. 
can't vote, can't own land, can't own a business. I mean, there are almost no rights for a woman in this society. So if she leaves her husband, she really is leaving aside her provision for life and is reduced to selling her body or begging. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of like the choices that are left at the end of it. So what Hosea is saying and what God is saying to Israel is, if you're going to walk away from this covenant, if you're going to walk away from this marriage, it's going to have fallout. It's going to have fallout. I feel like that is something that families, friendships, struggle with acknowledging and recognizing that I am not, because I love you, called to take away your fallout. Have you ever seen that? Or somebody, people make a choice and they expect somebody else to make up for the consequences of their choice? And that, that leaves that person where? Well, the one who's supposed to make up for the choices of another gets wrung out really, really dry, right? And the one who makes bad choices and expects everybody else to bail them out keeps making bad choices. Now, I was reading a book by uh, Henry Cloud a while ago, and he said, you know, he's sitting with a, a couple of parents who were talking about their son living as a, uh, you know, he's too lazy and he never gets anything done and he's going to fail out of college and he just lives like he doesn't have a care in the world. He doesn't have a problem in the world. You know, and here we are trying to help him go forward and, and, you know, we're paying for his room and board, we're paying for his classes, we're paying for all of his expenses, uh, we do his laundry, we do it, and yet he just goes out and parties and so we, you know, try to make sure he does his, and, and Dr. Cloud said, yeah, you know what, your son's right, he doesn't have any problems. You have a problem. <laughs> He's making all the choices and you're living with all the problems. He said, at some point, if you want him to grow up, he has to live with his problem. You have to give him back his problems instead of always taking them from him, right? And so in this, in this passage here, Hosea is saying to Gomer, if you choose to walk out of this marriage and walk away from our relationship, now you're going to own your problems. Not like vengeful, vindictive, Okay, the truth will out. If that's what you choose, then live with it and taste it for a while. Let it be bitter enough that you go, I don't want this anymore. Let it be bitter in your heart, in your soul. And so if, if Gomer is going to be left like a desert and parched land and slay her with thirst, God is saying the same thing to Israel. What might God be talking about with Israel using that language? What do you think? Sure. That's the issue at hand. But when he says, I'm going to leave her like a parched land and slay her with thirst, what's God saying is going to happen like in practical terms? What do you think? Maybe. Lose a drought would have a, a pretty big impact on agriculture. So secondarily then, if there is a drought, what does that mean practically? So we lose food supply. We lose income. Therefore, we start to lose wealth. And so very much like a shriveling plant, Israel begins to dry up. God is saying, I will leave her like a parched land. I have given all kind of abundance, but now... I won't. Now that it will be dried up. Why do you think God needed to say this to Israel? Okay. Right. As long as God seems good to them, I'm impervious, right? That's the language that they understood. They understood yes. That Right? So God knows that the way to get through to them is to hit them in the stomach and in the wallet. That's going to be the bell that rings in their head. Um, question is, are they actually going to listen? But there's not going to be any question that they hear it. 
because they will feel their stomachs hungry. They will see their lack of resources. They will watch cattle and crops die that they were hoping would make it. It's very visual. It's very right in front of them. They get it. They see it. They understand it. So God is speaking on their radio channel. They're tuned into this channel. A lot of times when God is trying to get your attention, he will, tu- he will use the channel that you're tuned into. So if your channel is money, you might have money problems. If your channel is children, you might, your children might be struggling. Because what, what's that going to do? What did you say? Gets my attention because that's where I'm already looking, right? And then I go because that really matters to me. Lord, help with this, right? Whatever it is that I'm tuned into, God knows and God uses to get my attention and to get me to turn to Him. And so here, as they watch, you know, they've been living with abundance. They've been living on the good graces of God. So it has to be said to them, this is coming to an end because of the choices you're making. And then it, hopefully, he's, otherwise, hopefully he's saying, you'll turn before we get there. So we don't have to get there. But they don't turn before they get there. And so he says, I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. And, and you kind of, in this passage, you hear Hosea talking to Gomer and overlaid is God talking to Israel. And sometimes it's more Hosea and Gomer, and then sometimes it's more God talking to Israel. Whenever you see the Baal reference, it's more God talking to Israel because Gomer's problem wasn't Baal. Israel's problem was Baal. Whenever you see the lovers thing, it's probably more Hosea talking to Gomer, but they're both applicable on both sides. It's just which one's kind of being referenced at which time. So here is one of those places where I will not show my love to her children. Is he talking about Gomer's children, or is he talking about the byproducts and, and the, the things that Israel has gotten through their idolatry? It's a little bit more ambiguous. Probably a little bit of both, right? Probably a little bit of both. And so Hosea is saying, we're going to stop covering for your choices. And God is saying, you know, all these things that you are getting as a result of your idolatry, I, I am not going to bless I'm not, I'm not going to keep going down that. He's done pouring out physical protection and blessings on generations of Israel as they cheat on him with idols and false gods. In other words, there are these generations in Israel coming forward and every generation is having passed on to it more and more and deeper and deeper of this idolatrous lifestyle. And God says, you're heading down a path and as you keep going down that path, I'm not going to keep pouring out my blessing on these generations that keep following in these footsteps. I'm not going to just let it keep going and keep going. So I think for us, the, one of the big points we can take out of this is that we as a generation, and you might think your generation is in front of mine or behind mine or whatever, but right now in, as the adults of this church, we may think that we're dealing with our lives and we're walking forward in our choices and I've got my family and, and whatever, but please do not ever underestimate the impact that we have on the generations that follow us. What we portray as what church is, who God is, what matters and what doesn't, matter, how we treat one another, how we do church business, how we pitch in and help, we have an impact on generations behind us. How we talk about God, how we talk about serving in the church, how we talk about spouses. You know, I I love the, you talked about this at the marriage conference, but I love the um, young people are going to get married, especially like my daughter got married when she was, before she was 21, she was still 20. She was about a week away from being 21. And everybody had something to say about that. What do you think they said to Kylie before she got married? Oh, you're so young. Oh, I don't know why you want to get married so young, right? And she's like, well, I'm in love. Well, that will wear off. You know, you'll get over that, right? So don't you love the, the missionaries of misery that come around to share the gospel of 
miserable marriage with everybody, you know? And, and Kylie said, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't even know what to say to them because we're like on two different planets. She's like, why wouldn't, if I know this is the person I want to be with for the rest of my life, and she had dated him for five years or something, if I know this is the person I want to be with for the rest of my life, why wouldn't I want to marry him young? What, what else do I want to do with my life? Like, I want to get married. I want to start a family. I want to get moving in my life. Yeah, that's what we did, right? Why would I want to wait? Well, but everybody's got to come around you and go, oh, no, 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 you, you, you can't. So what I'm saying to you is recognize that same dynamic is in play in the way that we as an older generation treat issues in the church. How do we treat young people in the church? Do we treat them like um, you know, this, this group of people that, that are just too loud and too crazy and they just need to get away from us and they're always disrespectful because they wear hats in church and, and we got to shoot our criticisms at them all the time? You know what I mean? What do we do? Because they're watching and receiving it, processing, you know, this generational divide. Or do we honor and appreciate them? Do we uh, encourage them? Do we model for them something? Is is there a connectedness? Is there a commonality between us? So we have to be very aware of the responsibility God has given us as we hold this torch. Like this is our time to run. And it's not going to last forever, and they're going to take what we've done and, and go with it. Which direction are we heading, and how are they going to follow us? This generational um, idolatry from one to the next to the next got so deeply ingrained that it became hopeless to the point where God had to completely wipe Israel out. You know, no longer a nation for, for millennia because of this generational idolatry that they passed on from one to the next. And we see issues like that in our country that get passed on from one generation to the next. What kind of issues in, in America or in our culture get passed on in, in a downward spiral from one generation to the next? Things that maybe we should do something about or we should make sure we're not passing on to our ch- kids or, or to the generation here. What kind of stuff? Okay, lifestyle things, right? Are we partying on the weekends and portraying it as this is the way to live and I work all week so I can live on the weekends, right? I will tell you, a lot of our young people in this church have heard that message, not necessarily from us particularly, but from generations before them, that what you do when you're young is you go sow your wild oats. That's what Kylie was supposed to do instead of getting married. Go sow your wild oats. She's like, I don't want to sow any wild oats because I don't like the harvest of wild oats. I would rather sow godliness with contentment because that's great. Like, you know what I mean? But I can tell you, I've talked to a lot of young people here. They believe that Friday night, Saturday night, any, any time that you can is time to party so you can have fun. And someday later, I'll settle down. That's what they believe. Is that what we're passing on? Is that what we did when we were their age? And now we, we tell the story of it, Right? So lifestyle choices. What other bad habits can we pass on? Uh, well, we don't listen to young people, and there's this, you always have this thing, there's this generation gap. Yeah. You know, um, I can't understand you, and you don't understand me. Right. And uh, that's something I want to talk to with my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the way that we uh, show respect for someone else's opinion, even when they are, we could dismiss it. You're too young to know. That says something, for sure. What other things? I think there's an issue with um, a misconception of the rights of people. Um, I think it's, it's slowly being lost. It started out with people just desiring to be treated as human beings. And as they started to receive that to a level... It, it keeps getting to a point where, you know, I need to take care of myself. I need to do things for me to the point where now there are groups of individuals that feel that merely speaking something that is offensive or whatever, mm-hmm. a violation of my rights that mm-hmm. is enforceable by force. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, it's getting out of hand that way. Yep. And, uh, you know, people lived a life where, you know, if you're last on your plate, if you treat everyone else better around you and you're the last person you're thinking about, all these problems would dissolve away. Mm-hmm. But everybody's thinking about themselves first. Mm-hmm. I have to take care of me first. Yeah. I'm the most important thing. And then how can I be deal with the rest of the people if I can't get my stuff done? Yeah. you got to learn to deal with everyone else around what you. What you're talking about is 
a mindset of my rights matter, which is true underneath of it, but then solution sets to that, attitudes to that, priority to that, that are godless, but we've said these are the ways to do it. A lot of it came from the way that political parties made power bases. They, I don't know if you recognize this, but they're not that interested in finding solutions. They're much more interested in cementing followers who will be passionate about their people winning power. That, that's what's at play right now. We've moved away from uh, good, upright people taking office so they can do the best thing for... We're miles away from that. Right now, it's about who's going to work for me. And, and what I hear as people try to make a decision about whether they're going to vote or not, what I hear more and more often is, well, their policies will benefit me. And we're never thinking about a big picture. We're just thinking about me, right? And then we say to people, well, if someone steps on your rights, what you need to do is you need to stand up for your rights, okay? So uh, a week ago on Monday, we had a, a kind of a unity service uh, at a church up the road here, Southwood Baptist, uh, that Jim Jefferson had organized, and I got to speak there as one of them. And, and it's kind of all kinds of different perspectives on what we should do as the church. And one of the things that's most disheartening to me is this um, thought process inside the church that's really just given to us by our culture, that what we should do is go march and stand up for our rights, make people aware that we're being downtrodden. And I get it. I understand the rage and the outrage because these are godless things that are happening. But I wonder if we ever stop to consider that we're supposed to be following Christ. So we should be looking at how did he address these issues, not how have people addressed it in... Do you know what I mean? And I wonder if we are aware of the direction we're headed because the more marches that happen and the more people that get up and protest and we're sitting out and we're not going to this and that and whatever and we're going to stop buying this product or that product or whatever, the more cemented we become as bitter, angry, separated people. We, right? Right. And I'm not saying we didn't start there. I'm just saying I don't know that what we're doing gets us better. As a matter of fact, what I see is it's getting us worse. So we got to do some better thinking and we got to do some better acting and interacting. Alan? Yeah, I think we even want to step past me because I see people that really aren't even paying attention to whether this policy or this thing is going to benefit me. They're really about, I know I'm against them. Yes, right. you're right. So let's put yeah. this in you're right. that'll be against the person that I'm supposed right. to be against. And when we don't reckon, we are not careful enough to evaluate. And I'm not saying this is our response. I'm just saying, as a country, if you look at it, we haven't ever considered whether all the things that we're fighting for or whatever are actually helping the way that we're fighting for is actually helping it get better, or if it's just making it worse so much so that I don't know what I'm for, but I sure know what I'm against. You know what I mean? And if I just know what I'm against, how does that help us? Because what do we do then? All we do is fight and destroy. We never get anywhere because we're not for anything and our beliefs are no longer driving us. It's just rage and outrage. Another thing that I've noticed, in, and I don't know why I noticed it because I don't even watch um, like sitcoms, but they'll tell a story and there's a laugh track in there. And they'll, you know, as the thing goes on, they'll, they'll play the laugh track. So you're supposed to think that what was just said was funny. But if you took that same situation and and made it the people that you interact with, your family, your close friends or anything, and the things that were happening were said, if they were said to you or you were in the middle of that, you wouldn't find that one bit funny. Right, right. And, and so things that are really crass and <clears throat> disgusting are laughed at like there's something to be celebrated yeah. when they're really sad. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the effect of that is progressing down a path so that we see the results in generations to follow. So th- that can feel really hopeless. What I'm saying is, as a church, how we deal with one another, with our relationship with the Lord, with worship, with studying the Word, with serving, with enthusiasm, all these things 
matter. And they're not going to change everything tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so we went out and we did a really great week where we really did all these things, you know, on point. Turn around and look at all the young people. Oh, good, they're all right there. It's a decade or decades of faithfulness that start to have an impact on our sphere of influence, which is really all we can do is have impact on our sphere of influence. I, uh, I tell this story a lot that when I was in first grade in public school, we'd go in, they'd pray, and they'd read something from the Bible. It was the second grade that was gone. It was like 1963. They took prayer and Bible reading out of school. Yeah. And if you look at the generations following that, mm-hmm. there's no... There's no respect for the Bible yep. and no respect for God at all. Mm-hmm. And that's like when you start looking at uh, these football players that are kneeling or protesting, right. whatever they're protesting, I'm like, they didn't have that. Right. And and it, not, not only that, but they had a, a president that sort of apologized for America. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, I, this is a uniquely American and uniquely window of this time thing. When the Bible became the Bible, when Christianity stormed the world, what did the government think of Christianity? What example were they setting towards God? It was wipe the Christians off the face of the earth. Somehow, we, we look at that, and, I, and we can see that that has had an effect, but we as Christians look at that and go, what are we supposed to do against such great odds? You know, the whole culture is godless and turning... And I'm like, do you remember our heritage? It isn't about the institutionalization or the, it's about believers living godly, passionately, willing to lay down our life. And God used that with 12 people. We got 18 or something here. We're, we're like 150% of that. Change the world. But the question is, will we? Because, again, we fall into patterns where it's like, well, vote your conscience and make change on the government. Is that what we read here? That that's going to be the methodology of change? But that's, and I'm not saying any of us. I'm saying, isn't that what Christians have acted like? If we get the right Supreme Court justices or we elect the right president or we, then, and has it ever? I mean, in my lifetime, we've had six or seven presidential elections where I've been told if we elect the right person, this country will turn back to God. I haven't seen any turns back to God yet. Why? Because that's not going to do it. It's going to be us doing what the Bible says, devoted to following, willing to lay down our life for this. That's what's going to do it. So we're a little church in Woodbury here, just doing our thing, helping people, whatever. But are we really doing this? Are we really living this? Are we really devoted to it? Or is it mm, take it or leave it? I just, when you were saying that about the political, because we went through this because last election we weren't here we were in the church and that was a big issue. Yeah. And, and, and you had people divided on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a little bit of trouble in one class because we were talking about it in one class and I basically said if you're looking for either one of these candidates to solve your problems, neither one of them represent Christ in any way. I don't know what you're looking at, but why are you looking to them to fix this? They're not going to fix it. And that's what we're talking about. And I, I thought about, uh, I'd look up at Ephesians 4, where it talks about maturity and growing and becoming mature in Christ. And it says, as a result of that, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. That's our problem. We don't even see it. We're, we're so all over the place that we're not focused on what we should be, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. We're focused on this political candidate or this political party and not realizing we shouldn't be focused. How much time did Christ spend on politics? <laughs> yeah. Virtually none. Yeah. We try to drag him in again and again. It's not the solution. Yeah. And we get pulled into that. And we get mm-hmm. pulled into that. And this, that's a worldly thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we get pulled into that stuff very easily. And right. we have to be mature enough to realize... That's, we can't be there mm-hmm. because that's why we can't be effective. Yep. That's why people don't see. I always think of it as if I'm on the outside and not a Christian looking in, why do I want something that I, I already have? Because they're doing the same thing that yep. the world's doing. So why would I want that? Yeah, That's Absolutely. the problem that we have. We, 
we ourselves have to be. And I think we have to hold that mirror up to ourselves and one another. And I think that's a tough thing to do because I can see it a lot easier in other people than I can see it in myself. You know, and I think that's where the spirit has to. And that that reflects how those of us that call ourselves Christians walk. Um, I think it reflects that directly um, more so than that of the lost world. Mm -hmm. Because we're the ones that are supposed to be saying those things, doing those things, rather than we're not mature in our Christianity, so we tend to lean against the things that we think are going to solve the problems for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, would you rather have a godly person in office than an ungodly person? Oh, sure, I would. Sure, I would. But recognize there's a downfall to that, too. And that downfall generally tends to be my human tendency to say, good, now somebody godly's in power. I can relax. I don't, they can leverage power. Think about who we serve. Jesus Christ, God himself came to this earth, he could have come in power, more power than we can imagine. If there was leverage to be had, he's about to be the king of the world, right? So if there's leverage to be had, if there's a position and authority to be had, he could have walked onto earth as God of, you know, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of all the universe, and said, bow the knee. With more force than we can muster in a million person march for all time, right? Could have done that. But what did he choose to do? That's who we follow. What did he choose to do? Lay all power aside, humble himself, become a servant, and lay down his life for people who didn't deserve. In politics, there is no hope for this country's system to survive. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ will survive just fine. So I want to for my kids, I want to hand off a viewpoint on how to interact in, in this American political system and whatever in a godly way, but not put my hope in it. I want to keep my hope where my hope is. So I wish that all the passion that gets directed towards political leanings and parties and rhetoric and talking and Facebook posting, whatever, if we could bottle that up and not waste it on that and instead poured into the cause of Christ, I think it would do a better job. That's just how I'm thinking right now. So, Pat. I think sometimes to be able to be a spiritual Christian is almost sometimes we have this mindset, we and they. Hmm. And, you know, God wants us to really look, not that we are in the world and live like the world, but we really need to look at the world they need a savior. Yeah. And they need they need us. They mm-hmm. need Christians because we're the only hope for the world. Jesus is the only hope. And you know, we have to have compassion, love for everyone out there because yeah. you know we're sinners and what what kind of what kind of person was God before Christ called man? Yeah. And I think that we need to be more loving and compassionate. And because it's yeah, for everybody, for everybody. And that's what, what this discussion bends towards. He says, their mother's been unfaithful, conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers. This, kind of, this discussion bends towards a simple question. Who does Gomer love? Who does Israel love? That's, that's where this is going. Who do you love? And for us, who do we love? Too honestly, the answer is myself. My own opinions, my own strength, my own resources, my own comfort level, my reputation. Too often, who I love is me. And for uh, Gomer, she had a husband who loved her. and, And even in this, you can see that passion. And yet she chose to love illegitimately. People who were um, less than truthful, honest, honorable in their interactions towards her, she would rather love them. Do we love lesser things with the love that should be directed towards our Lord? Do we 
passionately pursue other things in our life. And I'm not saying all of them are evil in and of themselves, but are we being faithful in our love for God? Do we love Him? Is He our passion? Because the question of who she loves is part of the question of why Hosea is so hurt, right? Who do you love? And God, by implication, asking the same question of Israel. Who do you love? Baal or me? Where's your passion? Where do you find your purpose? So Christians, who do you love? Is it your life? Is it your possessions? Is it Christmas season and all the decorations? Comfort, rest, money? Who do you love? Who are you willing to be passionate about and pour out your passion for? Is it your Lord that died for you? Do you love him? It's the last time you had a conversation with God that you just didn't want to leave. You had stuff to do, but you just didn't want to leave it because you were just enjoying being with God. Have you had conversations like that with people where you're like, maybe your children or your spouse or something, and you're like loving the time you had to spend together, but I got to go to work and I hate you have to go to work, but I got to go to work. You can feel that like relational, I love them so much and I want to be around them, but I got to go. Is that ever God or not? Do we not have that kind of passion? So the question that he brings out is, who do you love? Gomer, who do you love? And then the second question of it is, from where does good originate? Because do you see what he says? She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. What's she saying? My connection with these other lovers, these, these men that I'm being unfaithful to my husband with, the reason I have good stuff is because I have relationships with them. They give me my food and my water and my wool and my linen and my olive oil and my drink. All the good things of life come because of this. Now, do you think that's true? No, it's a lie that she's believed, but it's part of why, in her perspective, her passion is for these, this, this lifestyle that she's living because she believes it's doing her good. She believes good comes from it. Desirable effects come from these choices. That's what she believes. Israel also believes if we go after and worship Baal, Baal does what for us? Blesses us. God of pleasure, fertility, large harvests, lots of cattle and beasts, right? God of fertility. So if we serve Baal well, he's going to give us lots of good things, so we better serve Baal because he's the reason we're getting all this stuff. What's the problem with that? Not true. Baal's a piece of wood with some gold on top of him. He's not doing anything. But they believe it. They are led into a lie that says, if I pour my life out, if I pour my passion out, if I give myself to these people, if I put my attention on these, they're going to give me everything. Israel's saying, if we worship Baal and we serve Baal and we give our children to the altar of Baal, then we will be blessed and we will have more and that's what we want. Any correlation with our challenges? How many times do we misidentify where good comes from in our lives? We misassign the fountain of the source of every good thing. Did you know James tells us, brother of Christ, James 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. So anything good in your life that's actually worthwhile, that's a lasting good, only comes from one place. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from the hand of your gracious Heavenly Father. No matter where it looks like it came from, it came from Him. Do we have that understanding settled in our soul? Because she didn't. She's like, well, all this good stuff comes because I'm prostituting myself. Therefore, I have a better life. We are not the only people in the history of the world to struggle to remember where good things come from. And if you look around at our culture, you can see many people who believe and value things they shouldn't. I mean, right now, what's playing out with sexual harassment in the news media is we have idolized power and selfish sexuality. 
And now all of a sudden it gets exposed because, you know, somewhere long, long ago in the third book of the Bible, God said, be sure your sin will find you out. And guess what? He was right. So you can't hide it forever. Eventually it comes out. And if you hide it all the time you're on this earth, guess what? He stand before your creator who knows it all anyway. So be sure your sin will find you out. Right? But we've worshipped at the, I'm a powerful person. I've got a big name. Everybody knows who I am. I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of influence. And I can give stuff to you that nobody else can give to you, whether it's an opportunity in movies or entertainment or some kind of big high profile, whatever. And so I have the opportunity to impose my sexual will on you against your will. We've idolized it. And we believe that there's some benefit or some advantage to that. And so we act on it to the destruction of society. So I'm saying to you, do, do we have awareness of where we have believed good comes from that it doesn't come from? Maybe the way to ask that question is to say, what is it that when you lose it, you are convinced that your life is going to fall apart? Because I know something about our Heavenly Father. He tells me, I will never lose him. Has he told you that? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, the end of the world, what does that mean to you? Like, that's bad, right? When the world ends, I am with you all the way to that. Okay? So, never leave you, never forsake you. So I know that as a believer, I never lose him. That should mean, if I'm convinced that every good thing comes from him, that I never believe my life is falling apart. Right? Shouldn't it mean that? If my hope is in him, if I know he's got me, every good thing comes from him, then I can never lose my source of good things in my life because he's always with me. But when I lose, there's other things, when I lose them, I'm convinced and my soul, I've lost everything. What does that tell you? You have believed a wrong origin of good things in your life. It is settled into your soul. And now you are vulnerable to the enemy because the enemy will use that to make you fear losing your source of good. Whether it's a job or a relationship or a reputation. or He will chase you down with, uh-oh, uh-oh, you might lose that. You might lose that. You might lose that. I got to keep pursuing. I got to keep running. I got to keep chasing. I got to keep working. I got to keep overworking. I got to be overthinking because I can't lose that. That If I lose that, I lose everything. We've already been told we'll never lose the source of everything good in our life, but we act like unless we have this, we have no hope for any good in our lives. We are deceived, aren't we? And we live deceived, unfortunately, just like Gomer. Where does good originate from? And so Gomer says, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. It is an agricultural picture of directing a herd. They would use fences and they would use animals on the side and they would use even bushes and things like that to get a a herd of animals to go in the direction they want them to go. It would press them in. The idea of uh, blocking her path to press them in. And, And so there's this sense of I am going to try to make sure she goes in a direction that is life for her. And God, speaking to Israel, is saying, I'm going to persistently frustrate your evil desires and take away any sense of positive reward from things that will only destroy you. Now, that can feel like God hates you. But when we are vulnerable to believing that our source of good things is something other than God, the only way God can deal with that is to take away that thing. Does that make sense? Because I've trusted that thing. I I did this before on uh, Matthew 7. Jesus talks about, by their fruits you will know them. You ever heard that phrase? By their fruits you will know them. And then he says, every good tree brings forth good fruit. Every bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Good tree can't bring forth bad fruit. A bad tree can't bring forth good fruit. It's like, what is he talking about? That's kind of... It's kind of a weird phrase because the bad trees are bad tree people, so they only ever do bad, and the good trees are good people, they only ever do good. Are you a good tree or a bad tree? I'm kind of a, one of the middle ones. Well, he doesn't give a middle one, right? He only gives all good or all bad. What's he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. By their fruits you will know them. He's saying, when you live 
by the things of God, when you live by the Spirit of God, when you live in the plan of God, it only ever produces good things. Don't be deceived. It only ever produces good things. So in the discussion of false prophets, he's saying, when somebody tells you something and you live it out, if it produces something bad, horrible, wrong, spiritually, guess what? It was false teaching. (laughs) Most of the time we can roll it forward. So you listen to somebody on TV who tells you, if you give me $1,000, God's going to give you back $10,000. I know what that is before I even have to go anywhere. I know that that's false teaching, right? Because it's not going to bring back good. It brings back greed. Is greed part of God's plan for my life? No. Do I give to God to get? What in the world? This is crazy. It only brings back evil, right? So in this, this idea of, Living by the Spirit brings good. Living by the the flesh brings bad. Understand, no matter how much benefit I seem to get right away, flesh living is always going to take me to destruction. Always. It may be delayed destruction just so it can be deeper destruction, usually. The enemy will give you some like benefits in the meantime to keep you on the path so that when it all hits... It's devastating instead of just a little rock. And the way God does that, because then Jesus says, and so the the gardener, the, the, the caretaker of the vineyard, comes and cuts down the bad trees. He'll come and cut them down and burn the bad trees. Right? So here's what it looks like. You have a flesh tree in your life that you're used to, like, getting your satisfaction from and your self-worth and your self-image from and whatever and, and your sense of purpose and value and passion in life. And God knows it's a false tree that's only going to bring bad fruit. So he comes into your life and he cuts the tree down. He takes it away. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe whatever. Cuts it down, takes it away. And we go, oh no, my life is over. Why does God cut down the bad tree? Because he hates us. No, why does he cut down the bad tree? Because it's bad. And he loves us. He doesn't want us to be from that bad tree. What's he want us to do? Go get the good tree. Well, what do we do? Well, where's the next bad tree? I'll make that my... And then he comes and he cuts it. And it feels like devastation and loss and, and wreckage and my world falling apart when God cuts down our flesh tree. But he does it because he loves us. And that's what he's saying here. I will block her path. I will stop her. I will frustrate her. Some, some people interpret this prophecy to refer to Israel coming under the power of Assyria, the, the, the bitterness of Gentiles ruling over them, their desire for independence, and God gave them a taste of it before he actually brought them to ruin. He gave them a taste of it to frustrate their desire, to, to take away the sense that living for Baal was doing anything for them that they wanted. It didn't stop them. But God was at it, actively intervening so that they would turn from the path that leads them to death and instead leads them to the path to life. I think for us, it is a good question. It's not always the right question, but it's always a good question to ask. When something falls apart in my life, did God take that away because I was worshiping that? Idolizing that? Because I had my hope in that? that I was thinking that that could do something for me that only God could do, bring security, bring meaning, bring significance. And if, if so, then I can thank the Lord that he took it out of my life because I was blindly walking towards death with my hope in something that wasn't a source of hope. Does that make sense? I think there's a soberness to living as a Christian that gets us past some of this shallow thinking that dominates our world. You don't live on top of this world. You know, I'm on top of the world. As a Christian, we live in the hand of our Heavenly Father. And He gives us every good gift. And He holds us securely. My sense of safety, my sense of meaning, my sense of value as a person and purpose in this life comes from my Heavenly Father nowhere else. And when I start to drift, even as a pastor, when I start to drift into caring too much about what people think about what I say or how I lead or whatever, a lot of times God blows that up in my face. Why? Remind me, you're not following them. You're following me. Sometimes when you try to help somebody and they're nasty to you in return and that means you stop helping them, 
God's reminding you, you need to tune them out. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't help them, but it's not because of whether they appreciate you or not. What's it about? Is this what God asked me to do? I'm living for His approval. I'm living for Him to direct me, not everybody else. And I'm not saying we disconnect. I'm just in an isolation booth, you know, off meditating about God. I'm not saying that. But I am saying I'm many, many times challenged to let go of my hope in anything here so that my hope can all be in here. Here, Gomer has this hope in her lovers providing all these wonderful things for her. And Hosea says, I will block her path because I love her and she's dead wrong. Those ones are not the ones providing the good for her. He's about to tell us he's the one providing the good for her. And God is saying to Israel, I will block your path from Baal. As a matter of fact, in 20 years, he removes all of them from this whole land to a land far, far away where there is no Baal. Can't worship anymore. Why not? Because you wouldn't stop worshiping Baal. So I'll stop you from worshiping Baal. In our life, I think God is still in the business of graciously stopping us from death spirals and from things that would ruin our lives. And I think as Christians, we need to be more aware and thankful and thoughtful as God does those things in our lives. All right, so we will pick that up next year. After all of the holiday crazy, we'll come back and pick up um, in Hosea chapter 2, starting at verse 7.